Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linarduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me too. Lucy, hello. Hello, how are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. I'm surviving. I'm not thriving, but I'm surviving. Well, that's the first step. That's something. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm eager to hear if you've made a start on the Cazalet Chronicles yet. Yes, I have. Well, no, I haven't. Oh, (laughs) so an emotional (laughs) roller coaster. It is. I'm just keeping you on your toes. What I've done, my conscience is clear because I have ordered it and received it. In fact, I bought it from the new, you know, the new uh, bookshop.org. Yes, which is supporting independent bookshops throughout the UK and the US, I think. Yes. They were announced this week, weren't they? Every time you buy a book, some of the money goes to independent bookshops because obviously it's a very difficult time for them. Yeah. So I bought I bought that and a couple of other things. So my answer to that is sort of. It does seem brilliant though, bookshop.org. I've bought a couple of books through that as well. And it's so satisfying <laughs> to see the money going up along the top. There's a kind of a banner at the top of the screen and you can either, when you make your purchase, you can choose either you donate money into kind of a, a communal fund that is then divvied up between the member bookshops, or you can specify your local shop. I mean, they're obviously mostly closed now, a lot of them, but they'll be operating online. So they'll be working with the distributor and with this website, presumably. Anyway, it sounds like I'm doing some kind of publicity for them, but I'm not. It's just it's just such a relief that someone has done something like this. It does sound as though we're sponsored by them. We, this is not this podcast has not been brought to you by Bookshop Org. Can we say? <laughs> um, I'd like to ask you a question, Thea, Uh-oh. because last week you said you were picking random countries out of a hat and making dinner from them. And I can't. Did you? Was it Togo? Did you have Togo? No, I had Equatorial Guinea. Oh, I don't know why I thought you had. That Togo. was for the first week. I think I. I think okay. my husband might have pulled that one out because the, the whole idea was that we would uh, four weekends and we would pull two countries each at random Mm. and I got Equatorial Guinea and that was supposed to be this Saturday but listener I I did I just didn't have the energy (laughs) (laughs) Um, as usual just to move things swiftly on uh, as usual I have been enjoying hearing from listeners with news of where they are and what they are reading Nicola in Australia wrote to me that she listens to the podcast on her morning walk through the suburbs of Sydney where she sometimes stops to gaze at some horses, uh, which sounds quite like something out of an Elizabeth Harrower novel. Uh, And I can't emphasise really how much I like hearing where people are when they listen. I think it's something about, it's something like a tonic to lockdown, this being able to imagine other places or something. It is, it's really wonderful. And especially when, you know, people say I go for, last week there was um, someone who went for a walk to the top of a, I don't know if it was a hill or a mountain, but it was like a weekly walk. He went with his dog. And I very much like the idea of Nicola gazing at the horses for a bit it sounds lovely I can just I can just picture it so clearly um but so yes so do write in or tweet at the TLS to let us know where you are we have lots of listeners in China I gather so hello over there Nicola's reading is very on brand for us Lucy she's reading Critical Times the history of the TLS by the late Derwent May who died a month or so ago that's incredibly um uh, I don't know what the word is. I devoted. Maybe, maybe it's not. Maybe it's not because she's devoted to us. She just, you know, is. Uh, I mean, the TLS even. She just, you know, wants to um, 
to find out what's what. Well, she says. But she, I'm very, I'm very impressed. That's all I'll say. She says she's reading it for a university paper. Oh, there um, we go. It has so many wonderful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It has so many wonderful stories. She says that it hardly feels like work at all. Oh, that's nice. That's which is nice. which is lovely. Um, leaving history behind though now and stepping boldly into the present moment. On this week's show, we have a roundup of the best books of 2020 as chosen by our writers. 65 of them from around the world. And here to present the findings are Toby Lishtig, our fiction and politics editor, and the man charged with wrestling this beast of an annual feature into some kind of shape, our history editor, David Horsepool. Hello, both. Hello. Hello. Um, David, how, how established a tradition are we dealing with in Books of the Year? Is it sort of up there with Orange and Clove Pomanders, or is it, is it more recent? I obviously don't know quite what you're talking about, but um, <laughs> if Orange and Clove Pomanders were invented in 1988, then they're as old as that. Right, I believe the Pomander predates the Books of the Year special. Then. Well, we've established one incontrovertible fact at the beginning of our discussion. Well, so this was introduced in the 80s? Yeah, it seems to have been. It was, um, and it still was when I started doing it, grandly called International Books of the Year. Uh, and I think it was, it may have been a sort of hangover from after the paper returned from a long layoff when the printers had been on strike in the late 70s. There was a sort of catch up and people summarised the books that we had missed, as it were. And I had a quick look at it, which I don't think I've done before. And Thea, you'd really like to um, to see it because it has a very strong Italian influence. Does it? Some of the people we asked, um, I believe Leonardo Sciascia is Italian. Yes. We asked well, you him. contributed to it. Yeah, he Brilliant. contributed. So did someone called Gian Giacomo Migone, who's a politician, I what think. What did Sciascia choose? Uh, Danilo Kish. Ah. Uh, don't know what Migone choose, but get this. We also asked Giulio Andriotti. Wow. And apparently that was the second time he'd contributed to the paper. So we were always asking him. His favourite book of that year was How Roberto Calasso, who I think may even... Well, he's certainly well, got a book out Well, he has a book out, book out, out at the moment. <laughs> yeah, he's got a book out at the moment. Plus ça change. And I had a quick look. There are at least three people who we still ask now to offer their choices... Paul Muldoon, Edmund White and Michael Hoffman, I noticed, were all From the in first this one. year wow. and in 1988. Gosh, you could tell a history through this whole feature, really. Well, uh, the sort of thing about nothing ever changing in the literary world. Uh, but there, <laughs> yeah, that, that one. There are a lot more people asked now because we, we're reluctant to drop people because I suppose it seems rather rude. It's like not inviting someone to a party. So that that's why the the numbers tend to expand. Surely the um, the three people who are still being asked should have some kind of award, a medal. Yeah, well, we yeah. could I we could we should um, strike one for them. Yes, that's a good idea. I like that thought. Mm. I'll get right onto it. Thank you. <laughs> well, you have a whole year, a whole year to organise. So uh, you best hurry up. Uh, what what are the rules, David? Do they have to have been published in the last twelve months? Because I'm pretty sure that that rule has gone out the window. Whatever the rules are, they're more honoured in the breach. Uh, I did start actually issuing rules when inviting people because people seem to have so little idea of um, what they were being asked. But um, when you're dealing with a bunch of writers, academics, poets, playwrights, they tend to um, make up their own rules. So what I ask people is to choose their book or books of the year, preferably published in the last 12 months or in in fact the calendar year 2020 I think I would have said this year uh, in any language and well that's about it apart from a kind of um, request not to choose something by a friend or a relative. Which obviously again goes completely out the window Lydia Davis begins I've read only two books published this year both very good and both I confess by friends. Yes. But they do sound good. They do sound like good books. Well, this so. is the thing. I mean, your friends and your relatives can write very good books and you are quite <laughs> likely to um, to read them, aren't you? My favourite exactly. example of that is, um, which he got away with, of course, uh, is uh, Ian Wilson, who I looked up because I had a vague memory of this. He wrote um, about a book that he'd read. I felt I was encountering a very good English poet in the person of the translator. I admit that this translator, Emily Wilson, happens to be my daughter, but I am awestruck by how good this is and honestly would have said so whoever she was, which is so fantastically disarming 
that you just have to let it let it go. I'm sure. Um, I'm sure we've also had people recommending books and then saying, "Well, she is my wife," but I don't think that makes any difference. Absolutely, I, I, I'm sure that's happened. Well, I like this year. Raymond Tallis uh, not only ignores the 2020 rule; he also recommends not his own reading, but his wife's reading. Yes, it's a good combination, that isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Is it not has even anyone... 2020 his choice? I can't remember now, yes. No, he, he ignores 2020. He says, alas, I have not this year read any books published in 2020. Tolstoy, Trollope and various works of philosophy has con- have consumed all my reading time. time. Nevertheless, I am prompted to recommend The Mirror and the Light by Hilary Mantel on the basis of its impact on my wife. But then he says, I haven't read it personally, which is a, a phrase I absolutely love. I haven't read it personally. <laughs> yeah. there That's are so many very good one now. I'm going to use I that. Read I haven't personally. read it personally, but generally I have. <laughs> Um, David, has anyone ever recommended their own book or tried to recommend their own book in passing, perhaps? Not that I've noticed. No, no, I don't think they they have. I like this okay. week, not in the International Books of the Year, but um, we have um, a brilliant review by Michael Wolfe about Joe Biden, who um, refers to the days before presidential memoirs sold in their millions, and he can only be referring to his own book there, I think, when discussing <laughs> books that sell in their millions about certain presidents. But um, in, in Books of the Year, we're far more high-minded and we don't recommend ourselves, I think. Um, right. Well, here's how we're going to do this then. I think we should go easy on ourselves uh, and our listeners and accept that we're not going to get through the full 65 of the contributions, but we can pluck out some of the more interesting ones. So, uh, Toby, would you like to start us off? Yeah, so so um, one of the bags, the book bags that I like is Paul Binding's one, one by Roy Jacobson called Eyes of the Regal, which is part of this cycle called the Baroi Trilogy. It's set on this island of Norway, and it's, sort of, it's set during and after the Second World War. And I've just been very intrigued by this series. We've covered each of the three books that have been translated into English so far. I haven't read any of them yet, but each time I get a new review about the latest installment in the series, I'm reminded of needing to go and get stuck into it. it just you could say really... you've not read them personally. Yes, I ha- exactly. I haven't read them personally. Um, and I would personally like to read them. And you sort of do always come out with a bit of a, a shopping list. Yeah, a shopping list, a kind of a, you know, kind of a enhanced guilt. Yeah, self-flagellating um, shopping self-flagellation, list. Self-flagellation, exactly. <laughs> um, and then the next choice is David Bromwich's one, and he's picked out this book by Frederick de Boer called The Cult of Smart. And it's more it's more the kind of the theme that I'm very interested in. It's, it essentially is about meritocracy and about how we are disproportionately rewarding people in our society who are very good at getting ahead in certain intellectual ways and passing exams and jumping through the right hoops, but how we need to completely rethink this. And there's actually a very good piece by Paul Collier about this in our paper about four or five weeks ago. And he himself has picked out a book which he reviewed in that piece called The Tyranny of Merit by Michael Sandel, which is about a very similar subject. And he also reviewed David Goodhart's new book, uh, Hand, Head, Heart, which is about a very similar subject. And all of these are building on the very famous book by Michael Young, The, the Rise of the Meritocracy, uh, which was published about 60 years ago, I think. David might be able to give me an exact date, I don't know. Um, but it's, it's just it's a theme that seems to be being built on a lot at the moment. And I think it seems and sounds very important. Um, David Bromwich refers to the, the radical honesty of this essentially socialist proposal bad remedies like the abolition of admissions tests and the increase of the therapeutic layer in college administrations would be rendered unnecessary by a reappraisal of it all and it just it seems like it's very much um a topic for our times mm. so that's david bromwich's and then there was this other book that uh, so this is this is gabriel josephovici's choice he's he's chosen black wave um by kim gattas who's the former bbc middle east correspondent and it was it was one of those books that sort of slightly passed me by I, I i'd read a bit about it but hadn't really it just sort of dropped off my radar and it just sounds really really interesting it's about um he, he refers to it as the finest book i've ever read on the horrors that have overwhelmed the middle east in the past 40 years and i've been getting a bit obsessed recently by this bbc series once upon a time in iraq i don't know if anyone else oh it's so it. good it is it? so brilliant um really really brilliant I'm, i think we're four episodes in and mm. of course, Black Wave takes in far more than the horrors of the Second Iraq War. Um, it's it's about everything from you know the Khashoggi killing to Lebanon, Pakistan, Ethiopia, Turkey. But it just sounds like a really interesting panoptic view of everything that's gone so wrong in that region. 
um, sort of over the course of my lifetime. Yeah, and he says, in order not to get too depressed by Black Wave, I would suggest reading it in tandem with the Penguin Book of Ulipo, Philip Terry's rich anthology of Ulipo writings uh, from Rabelais to Perec. Yes. He says, it's a, it's a salutary reminder yes. that laughter and linguistic dexterity, dexterity, which I can't even say, uh, linguistic dexterity are as much part of what it means to be human as violence and greed. That's a book also mentioned by Mark Ford, in fact. So something about 2020 also seems to be sending us in the direction of Ulipo. Exactly. And, you know, uh, if ever we, if ever we weren't headed in that direction. Yes, if ever we were. And, you know, but, you know, with a, with a, uh, you know, a vaccine possibly on the horizon and depending on your politics, uh, a fortuitous change of uh, government in the States, perhaps there is a bit of optimism coming at the end of this year and perhaps um, reading Ulipo after Black Wave is a kind of way of paralleling that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lucy, tell us about your contribution, which contributions you most enjoyed. Well, one of the ones that leapt out at me was recommended by Lisa Hilton, who, of course, wrote a TLS book for us. Is that a plug? I didn't. I mean, sorry. If it well, is, it's I've not your, it's it's not your own to. book. It's no, no, your, I didn't. I, I think we're fine. I, 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 I don't have anything. <laughs> He's not your wife. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not as far as I'm aware. Um, and the book is called To Calais in Ordinary Time by James Meek. And it's a, a story of a band of travellers in 1348 uh, who sort of fall together on the road to Calais. And she says he's created a unique language for his tale, a pitch-perfect rendering of Old English mixed with Norman French, which just sounds brilliant. And she says the, lang- the language is amazing, but the pace and detail of the story are wonderful as well. And then just at the end, the silent companion of their journey is the Black Death. I just thought I'd really like to read that. It sounds terrific. I I hadn't I I hadn't been aware of it. No, it does sound fantastic. It's also it sounds like something that is just fully, fully imagined and realised. Yeah, and I I really do like the idea of that that language. Yeah. So um, I you know I genuinely might try and get that book. A couple of others actually. Daniel Carlin mentioned a book by Oliver Soden, who wrote a brilliant piece for us about Michael Tippett. Uh, called Geoffrey the Poet's Cat, which is, you know, Christopher Smart, the um, yes. poet, uh, you know, who was in a, spent a lot of time in an asylum. So the, for I will consider my cat Geoffrey, it's, um, it's about Geoffrey the Cat. Um, and I'm aware of this book, but I haven't seen it. And actually, I would, I would love to read it. Daniel Carlin says, um, he says, the greatest English literary cat is Kipling's cat that walked by himself with an honourable mention for Edward Lear. Hasn't... Um, Who's just written a book about philosophy and cats? John Gray, hasn't he just written a, a serious book about the philosophy of cats? Is it cats? I thought it was dogs. No, I think it is cats. I think you're I think right. It's yes, cats. it's cats. Yeah. He says it's charming without being twee, light but not lightweight, inventive within the bounds of respect for history. Mm-mm. So, you know, that's what well, you can good. hope for. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. And uh, Claire Loudon recommended Ferdinand Mount's Kiss Myself Goodbye, The Many Lives of Aunt Munker. Ferdinand Mount previous editor of the paper. She describes it as part part memoir, part gene- genealogical thriller. Is that even a thing? And it is a thing. It definitely is a thing. Well, there you go. And actually, I would love to read that. I have actually, I've already bought a copy. It's hopefully winging its way to me now. Okay, good stuff. Well, perhaps I can borrow yeah, I'll, yours. I'll, if I'll pop it back in the post as soon, again in real <laughs> as, soon as, I, as soon as I turn <laughs> it around, I'll get it on its way to you. Um, David, who would you like to point to? Uh, because I've been reading such a lot of big history books and big biographies recently I was looking out for slightly shorter sharper stuff and Craig Rain's recommendation of Matthew Francis's uh, latest collection jumped out at me um, Wing it's called and Craig Rain's I think is incapable of entirely praising something. He's far too <laughs> critically rigorous. So he says something pedantically completist to my taste, fractionally overdetermined. But then he quotes <laughs> things from the kind of particular sort of nature poetry of um, Matthew Francis. I love the fact that he's come up with a a new collective noun for seagulls, which is a pillage of seagulls, which I liked very much. And then this sounded very right to me, having just, um, after bonfire night, been waving round sparklers with children. Uh, he describes two sparklers, metal kiss till the magma bead at the centre brightens, showering the garden with sparrow claws of light, which I thought was absolutely fantastic. So um, that very much appealed to me. And the last one that um, I, I really want to get hold of, which is sort of making up for something I missed out and we had tickets booked my wife and I to see Artemisia at 
the yes. National Gallery. And Elizabeth Lowry, who reviewed it, who wrote a very good review in the Times Literary Supplement of the exhibition, recommends the catalogue. I like the sound of the catalogue because she says it's um, it's completely kind of jargon free. Well, David, you might you might be interested to know that Elizabeth Lowry did in fact join us on the podcast oh, whenever it was well, about a month know. ago, and she uh, she talked to us about it then as well. And it does sound incredible. I. I was on the cusp of booking tickets myself and I didn't. But um, yeah, I'm wondering what will happen, whether whether places that have exhibitions like that on will kind of restart the clock, you know, set it back by a month to make up for the fact that lockdown has cut into the amount of time that people had. It does seem as though a lot of the major ones are are being able to, to postpone the closing times oh, good. generally, I think. I mean, presumably the... The international calendar of lending and what goes where has completely gone up the spout anyway. Though I think everyone is is having to react well, as as is ev- everybody is. Everyone's having to react pretty nimbly to you know new circumstances as they mm, arise. A dance. Um, I'm struck by the amount of poetry actually mentioned this year. Um, apart from uh, Craig Rain, a, a number of other people have have recommended poetry collections. Um, I wonder if there seems to be more than. In other years, does there? Maybe. That might be right. I mean, I was surprised. I had to double check, for example, that I had ascribed the right contribution to Richard Davenport Hines, who I think of more as a historian and biographer, but he's um, recommended more than one uh, collection of poetry this year. I just had to sort of check that I hadn't, you know, given his contribution, given a poet's contribution to him, as it were, but it definitely is Richard Damport Hyde, who chose Martha Sprackland and uh, mentions Derek Marn and talks about um, gallery press in Ireland yeah. and the Carbol yeah. Olympics by John McAuliffe. Well, he's he's certainly one of the, um, his is certainly one of the contributions I was most drawn to, that Martha Sprackland poetry book there, Citadel, it's published by Liverpool University Press, I think. Um, he says, I've returned over and over again to this little work of perfect art. The language is so lithe, exact and rich. The painterly image is such a joy. The sensibility so fine and rare. It just sounds, she, he says that she's, it's reminiscent of Elizabeth Bishop, which is pretty, pretty high praise, um, I, I would think. And mm. um, what were your other ones, Thea? We have to ask you as well as that. Well, yeah, I think I, I sort of, was pulled in by the, the poetry. Um, Beverly B. Brahick's recommendation of Evan Boland's The Historians, that was published by Carcanet, I think about I think about a week ago. It was in press when Boland died quite suddenly in April. It was a, a stroke. She was only 75. Um, Beverly says, history of the overlooked is a constant in, in Boland, uh, but I think it's a sense of place that haunts me. And I have to agree. I mean, her poems about the famine roads in Ireland, they really they never left me she quotes Beverly quotes from a poem beginning I was born in a place where rain is second nature I won't read the rest of it Uh, but there's this beautiful kind of solace in bad weather and the the constancy of it sense that really these people in this particular corner of the world uh, in Ireland have been chosen almost blessed by the rain's loyalty which is quite a healthy way of looking at weather I think but this this volume the historians it's kind of presented as the culmination of Evan Boland's distinctive blending of legend and history in the life of ordinary women as the title poem sort of sums it up there's a line say the word history I see your mother mine their hands are full of words so yes that that that's on my that's on my list I was also I like Margaret Drabble's recommendation because it it does what Toby was saying before it sort of trips you up and makes you feel guilty uh, about things that you've been meaning to read for at least you know 12 months so Tsitsi Dangaremba's novel this mournable body it's on the booker list isn't it that one as well exactly yes it's on the booker list so i think we'll find out next week who who wins the book is that right toby yes thursday that's next week thursday um but yeah no margaret uh, drabble uh, describes it as a powerful and wholly contemporary portrait of the struggles of zimbabwe today most of it's set in harare uh but there are telling excursions to the homesteads of the narrator's childhood and she quotes this excellent description uh, the near the nearby mountains have, in the years since you last visited, grown as bald as underfed grandfathers, which is which is a, an excellent line. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's so much. Unsurprisingly, there are 65 contributions to to work your way through. I chuckled at the wryness of Stephen Brown's actually because it was just so 
short and, and pithy. He said, in Simone de Beauvoir's Les Belles Images, a woman copes with her child's problems and with her parents' problems, with her own problems, somehow maintaining her balance through it all. Its concerns are so contemporary that one begins to think, it's depressing in a way, that nothing has happened between 1964 and today that has really mattered. <laughs> yes, that's one way of looking at things. Um, well, still to come on the show in a surprise twist, which no one will have seen coming, we'll be talking about books. The editors here assembled will share their own favourites from the past 12 months reading. And if you have enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, perhaps you will consider subscribing to the TLS itself. Should you wish to do so, you will find all the options and details online at the-tls.co.uk. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linarduzzi and I'm here with Lucy Dallas. Uh, Lucy, there is some some news, some new news, some new news on an old theme, um, a new statue in London. What's the story? Yes, there is um, a brand new statue uh, that went up uh, on Tuesday, I think, of Mary Wollstonecraft on Newington Green, which is near where she used to live. And I think she set up a girls' school there. And it's to honour you know, this very radical, very forward-thinking um, feminist called the mother of feminism sometimes. She wrote The Vindication of the Rights of Woman uh, and is probably now more known as um, the mother of Mary Shelley. But the thing about the new statue is, well, it was put up partly because it turns out that over, I think over 90% of the statues in London are uh, of men. Yeah. Uh, and there's been a long campaign to put up a statue of Mary Wollstonecraft, so great stuff. This has been um, it's been a, a decade in the making, and that in itself seems very surprising, but then not so much when you think about the first official statue put up of a woman in Parliament Square of Millicent Fawcett. That's only been around 18 months, and that was, again, a huge campaign by um, Caroline Criado Perez, wasn't it? So none of this has been easy. It's been a long and protracted uh, yes, it's been a long time in the making, and it's fair to say I think that it hasn't gone entirely smoothly, <laughs> because no. almost as soon as the statue was unveiled, people have started objecting to it on the grounds mostly that she's naked. So, if you what, what does it what does it if you describe it objectively first, what do what what do we see? It's it's uh, it's sort of copper and silver, is it? Is that right? Or silvered copper, something like that? It looks silver. Um, it's by Maggie Hambling. I'm not sure if I said that. And there's a sort of mass rising up in which I think you can sort of see figures. I think the idea is that she is a woman building on the achievements and sort of trials and labour of, of all the women before her. And she's sort of rising up out of that, you know, a very kind of inspirational idea. And, and, and this sort of mass is quite big. 
and the figure at the top is very small. It's a small silver nude, uh, female nude. Well, it's, and, it's um, not even her, is it? It doesn't. It, the, I mean, one of the criticisms is it's not even her likeness. It doesn't look like her. It's a symbolic depiction of a, a sort of archetypal female figure. Yes. So that's a criticism and a defence, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So the um, Maggie Hambling has said. It's this. It's not a statue of Mary Wollstonecraft. It's a statue for her, mm. exactly as you say, an archetypal female figure. And uh, if you if you put clothes on her, that would limit it immediately. It's not supposed to be one one particular person. It's mm. it's sort of the idea of uh, womanhood. And I suppose you know, in a kind of art history tradition, of course, there's a great long art history tradition of female nudes. But again, feminists. <laughs> would say well yeah there's a there's a long tradition of paintings and artworks where the women are in the nude and the men have got their clothes on and that's what seems to happen with most of the other statues as well and I suppose what it also comes down to is what a statue stands for are you literally what do people want it to achieve how do you portray a person in their complexity and with their flaws and if if you do decide to to create a statue that is the full likeness of a person, does it does it then become a total endorsement of them and everything that they stood for? Um, or is I mean, I suppose the alternative is that you commemorate their ideas, and I guess maybe that's what Mag- Maggie Hambling's defence is that she's commemorating the ideas, albeit in in a way that hasn't gone down very well, and I can completely see why. But it's just an interesting point about the whether you create the likeness or you you know, and the entire person, or you commemorate ideas. Well, and quite, and I mean, that's a very good point. And also, I'm afraid the statues where they just do the man, because mostly it is the man, or where they mm-hmm. have done, you know, the man wearing the clothes appropriate to his time. I mean, he is, they are crucially all wearing clothes. Let's, let's mm. make that point very clearly. I don't, I think, I think they just become invisible, don't they, after a while? I mean, as long as uh, our, our notice is brought to, has been brought to some of them recently because they're, they're celebrating people that, that now that we might think actually we don't want to celebrate them. But just as a piece of art, very few people look at them and say, what a beautiful thing. Whereas the things, let's say, in the fourth plinth on Trafalgar Square have been pretty bonkers, but people had to stop and look at them and think about them and work out what was going on. Yeah, well, I'm sure uh, I'm sure we all look forward to a day when we're allowed to indulge in non-essential travel and go and see this for ourselves and, and work out how we feel about it. Back to books of the year now, though. It's time to bring our own favourites to the metaphorical table. Who wants to go first? David? Oh, it's me again. Right. It's you again. <laughs> uh, thanks very much. Um, I have to tread carefully because I'm, judge- I'm one of a number of judges of a prize this year of um, non-fiction so I I might sort of spread my choices around so as not to seem to be making any particular favourites but I have read some really uh, tremendous ones this year including uh, Alan Allport's book Britain at Bay which is a book about appeasement and Britain at the time of uh, Chamberlain and the late 30s and you would have thought there was very little new to say about that, but he does sort of recast it tremendously and uh, recast it as a sort of self-delusionary time in British history, and particularly manages to portray Neville Chamberlain as completely, absolutely awful, and yet (laughs) somehow not entirely wrong. So he he has personally no time for him at all. He's he's a sort of monster of ego, self-regard, wounded pride, and sort of unrealistic expectations. But he also points out that he didn't have quite as much room for manoeuvre as people like to think. But I've mostly spent, um, like a TLS contributor, spent the year when not reading books that I have to, uh, reading novels not published this year. So I'm not sure that I can be... That much use for people's um, view of Well, you can give us one of those, though. I think you mentioned, um, unofficially to me, you mentioned the Topeka School, that you were catching up with that. And that, I mean, that was that was one of last year's books of the year, wasn't it? Yes, uh, which I was put on to by our friend from the podcast right here. He's here today, like Eamon Andrews. Um, Toby's uh, brilliant review, in which he explains the narrator mansplaining his girlfriend into throwing herself off a boat 
um, and I was so intrigued by <laughs> that description. It's a great, uh, it's the opening scene, isn't it? Yes, I had to go again. It, it's it's a very, it's filled with this kind of um, tension that builds and builds and builds throughout it, despite um, on the surface not not actually that much going on. Um, I, I loved it, actually. Yeah, I, I, I very much agree. I think it was quite underrated and underappreciated by various critics. I won't name names, but I think because, I mean, actually, I really liked Ben Lerner's first two novels, um, but they were quite sort of interior and, you know, sort of man wanders around city and has thoughts. But actually, this had much more, as you say, building tension, narrative drive. And I, I don't think enough people quite got that. A, a lot of people sort of got stuck on the, or kind of, tripped up on the politics of it didn't they yeah um i mean i think there's a bit, i think he deals, deals with politics brilliantly though um this sort of there's this running and i won't go into too many details but this running metaphor of the debating team and the spread which is you kind of basically you try and win a debate not kind of basically with rhetorical tricks by drowning out your opponent with this sea of spurious argument and that becomes a metaphor for our contemporary political discourse and it's done very very cleverly um yeah i think it i think it was very much my favorite novel of 2019 and i think it can be my our favorite novel of 2020 as well if, if anyone wants to that. <laughs> two for the price of one <laughs> why not <laughs> It's, uh, it's the kind of novel I think Fred, uh, Frederick Raphael is, is talking about when he writes in this year's Books of the Year. He sort of has a dig and he says, um, the novel has been subjected to so much disfiguring rejuvenation that it is a pleasure to come on two handsome instances of the traditional form with a wide variety of characters by authors at once self-effacing and omniscient. And he goes on to recommend William Boyd, his new novel trio, and Miroir de, de nos peines by Pierre Lemaitre. But he's very much having a dig at... Autofiction. Yes. What did, what did you call it? What, what rejuvenation? Disfiguring rejuvenation. Yes, so much reju- uh, a disfiguring rejuvenation. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, does, he does not approve. Okay. <laughs> Toby, as, as fiction editor and politics editor, um, you sort of have to be all over reality as well as people's wildest imaginations. I mean, you must, you must be knackered. Well, it's all lies, isn't it? So it's all, all melds into one category. Um, I'm I, for the, for my novel. I am going to choose some disfiguring uh, first-person fiction, which isn't quite autofiction. It's a very, very intriguing book by a debut novelist called Gabriel Krauser, called Who They Was. We reviewed it in the paper a couple of months ago, and it got onto the book a long list, but it didn't make the short list. And I think there was so much of a sort of hullabaloo about Hilary, Hilary Mantel not making it off the long list onto the short list. No one really noticed the fact that Krauser didn't, didn't make it through. And perhaps other people didn't think it was quite as good as I was, as I did and as I do. But I think it's, it's extraordinary. It's written in this gangland patois, which, you know, it's a difficult thing to do to kind of make it stand up and for the voice to not waver. And it doesn't waver and you sort of have to hit the rhythm of it. It's a bit, you know, it's a bit like an Irving Welsh's train spotting or, or an Anthony Burgess's Clockwork Orange, except I think this patois, more like Irving Welsh, isn't, you know, it isn't made up. It's, it's, it's very much how the characters did and do speak in real life. And it features this very morally dubious gangster character. Um, who is Gabriel Krause, he's called Gabriel in it. Um, what's one of the things that's extraordinary about it is that there's very little sense of guilt um, that the character feels for the life which he's recently left behind. Um, it's quite ethically troubling, the whole thing. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very well plotted, it's very pacey, it's funny, it's violent, but the actual ethical core is something I still haven't quite got my head around. And there's this very interesting disjunction between the, the narrator who sort of just left this life behind him maybe one or two years ago and still hankers after it. And the actual novelist whose picture can be seen on the jacket, dust, you know, the, the jacket flap, aged 10 years older than the narrator saying, oh, Gabriel Krauser used to be in gangs in London and he's left that world behind him. And the sort of gap between the fictional narrator and the novelist as cast in the packaging of the book is where that ethics lies. And you're sort of in that gap throughout the whole novel. And it's very, yeah, it's just incredibly well done. And it's, you know, it's, it's an extremely gripping read as well. 
Anything else that you'd like to alert us to? Anything else that you've particularly... Well, very briefly, I won't go into the details, because we've actually discussed it on this podcast before, but one of the other book contenders, Shuggy Bane, which I reviewed for the paper a few weeks ago, um, uh, Douglas Stewart's um, debut novel. I really, really liked that. Um, and that's still in the running. I wouldn't be surprised. You mentioned Tsitsi Dangaremga, Fear, but I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Douglas Stewart won the prize. And I think, I think if he doesn't, it will be Dangaremga. Um, we'll see how wrong I am next week, but um, I suspect it could be either of those two. Um, away from fiction, um, there was a book I read just at the start of lockdown, and it's quite light, um, but I, I just found it incredibly engaging. It's by Mark O'Connell. It's called Notes from an Apocalypse. And this is basically about doomsday preppers, people who are getting ready for the end of the world, either in their bunkers, you know, in the middle of the American desert, or tech billionaires, you know, setting up estates in New Zealand where they hope to flee um, once climate change really begins to make life unbearable uh, around much of the globe. And it was particularly peculiar reading this at the start of the pandemic. I mean, he, he discusses his anxieties for the world. He's got young children, which has sort of made him reappraise his existence slightly. And he, he, he discusses the threats to humanity, including pandemics. You know, he wrote this well before COVID-19. And it was, it was just quite salient to read it at the time. And there's, there's quite a lot of interesting sort of internalising and... and I guess, uh, philosophising about our place in the world. And he sort of has this fairly glib but not unattractive cold eye which he casts on the world. He asked at one point, why was it so unacceptable that humanity should simply run its course? I think that's that's a line that kind of stays throughout the, the book. So um, I thought you said it was light. I was about <laughs> to say that myself. However, <laughs> that's your light relief. What, what do you However, mean? However, <laughs> very, very funny. And so it's all about, yeah, it's all about these kind of odd people who are prepping. But he firstly makes, not so much he makes sense of it, but he investigates the kind of selfishness of their actions in turning away from the world you know but what about you know even even the, the billionaires who are buying these vast tracts of land in New Zealand and Canada what are they actually you know how are they going to possibly live if, if climate change is as bad as they really think and what he comes back to in the end and this is why it is actually quite maybe, maybe light was the wrong word but certainly a heartening book is that he kind of comes back to an embrace of humanity and he shows that these people fleeing the world are doing it for all the wrong reasons and how we know we need to come together to stop these things and to find a vaccine and to halt climate change in its tracks and it's funny there you go I suppose <laughs> I suppose so but also also there's the inevitable realization that, that there are there's a prepper in all of us I mean I've already seen I've already seen a run on pasta in, in the local shop <laughs> absolutely and in the days when we used to come into the TLS office before before COVID and we we, we, de we definitely sat around and discussed our escape plan didn't oh, we yeah. um <laughs> but but exactly so he really he, he appeals to the prepper in all of us I'm still not convinced that that's a light book so maybe Lucy maybe you can bring a bit of levity <laughs> to this uh, I'm situation. slightly concerned I was left out of your escape plan this is the first I've heard oh, of it. No, sorry, do you remember David. there was um, no room in the pot. There, there was a sort of secret office protocol, but not many people knew what it was. I didn't know what it was. I just knew there was one, and I felt reassured by that. I have a sense that our, our former colleague uh, Ros Deneen kept a written document of I think of she who did, was going to she, do what. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and I was just happy that she had sorted it. I have to drop her a line and find out what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lucy, are you saying what turning to light? I, we, I need some light relief. I'm an idiot. What? But what have I been reading? I haven't been reading anything very uplifting, I'm afraid. I have, there was a very good historical novel by a writer. I don't know if you've heard of her, Hilary Mantel. It's <laughs> about. Um, I was really, really affected by it. I, it's, it's, there's not many books that that you live in, and actually, two of them. The other one, predictably enough. There is one other one that I haven't talked about on the podcast, but also Lonesome Dove. I was really, really just sort of affected by it. Lonesome Dove, actually, and The Mirror and the Light, I couldn't read anything after it for a couple of weeks. How did just... it How did it affect you? How did Mirror and the Light, how did it affect you? What What did it make you feel? I started feeling a bit paranoid while I was reading The Mirror and the Light and a bit jittery because you can, you can see bits of the net closing in. And also it helps that I'm a, a pretty much an ignoramus about the history of this period. So I didn't really, I mean, I knew the massive basic facts, but that was about it. So I didn't know what brought about his downfall or how. And there's so many lines of inquiry and um, uh, sort of threads that you can pull on. You know, and I was like, oh, I wonder if that, oh, is, is it going to be this? And then it's not that, and he saves it. And I just found myself sort of, 
feeling paranoid and seeing conspiracies because that's what Cromwell was doing. And he was right to, because, you know, there were some. And I just, and, and, and there was also a great fear that it would not be as good as the first two, I think. And it really was. And, that, and, and how often does that happen, especially the end as well? I mean, it's notoriously difficult to end, especially a great big rich thing like that very very difficult to end and the end was absolutely beautiful you wonder how she must feel after after that how Henry Mantel must yeah probably knackered a mixture of relief and and aggrieved I would expect just feeling some kind of grief I I think I read a thing about her that she wrote the end very early so she knew that she dealt with it she wasn't sort of dreading it because she actually wrote that quite early on in the I, I don't know exactly at what point um, but she had already, she'd got that in the drawer, as it were. So she didn't need to dread it. Shall I tell you what I've been reading? Or does no one really care? Oh, go on then. <laughs> um, well, weirdly, um, well, I suppose it's not weirdly, but I, I've been, Sarah Moss just seems to have really sat quite well with me. Uh, something about short, quiet books. They all turn on this the kind of provisional precariousness of of life. <laughs> um, the fragility of social and familiar Bond, so I don't know, can't imagine why, but that really resonates <laughs> at the moment. Um, I read Summer, uh, Summer Water most recently. Uh, I think it was published in August. And I thought it started out brilliantly. The premise, um, so it's all these detached people who find themselves for different reasons in a holiday park and wooden cabins and uh, by a lock in Scotland and the weather is, is biblically, uh, biblically bad. And so there's the feeling of isolation and being trapped. And uh, it feels like a pandemic novel, but it was it was written before any of this happened. So it's actually more of a Brexit novel. Um, and I, I think it sort of goes a bit wrong. Toby and I have sort of talked about this as well. It sort of loses its way. The, the rhythm goes out of it. Um, but I think what I like about it is that it points me back to Sarah Moss's other books. Uh, so this is me. This is my way of getting around the 2020 rule. And so we'll go back to Ghost Wall from a couple of years ago, which I hadn't I hadn't actually got around to reading. Uh, and I think that is a better that is a better book. It's about a modern family living in a recreated Iron Age settlement. All of her books seem to be about kind of settlements and small communities uh, at the mercy of various winds, be it the NHS that's falling apart or Brexit or or in fact, the first book. Cold Earth? Was it Cold Earth? That was a pandemic novel, and that was from 2009. So she's clearly an oracle. Yeah, she must be. Did she also write a book about Iceland and knitting? Yes. Oh, yes, I read that. Yes. That was that was jolly good. She's brilliant. I love Sarah Moss. I think I, I completely agree with you. Ghost, uh, the Ghost Wall's just brilliant, and I can't wait for it to be turned into a film. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure it has been optioned, and it's just... it's. The whole setup, as you say, this Iron Age settlement reenactment, and the kind of when it when it gets pushed too far, shall we say, without giving away any of the ending, um, it works brilliantly. You know, I I really liked. I think you did as well, Thea. Her previous book as well, the title is it the title zone. The tidal zone. The tidal yes. zone. Yeah, a quieter book, but really yeah. powerful as well. And um, hold on, one one because I've taken us back. I've ridden roughshod over the you rules. You really have. David. You um, started out by taking us back. What the rules were. <laughs> Well, I wondered you talking about uh, Sarah Moss. Did, did, does that at all chime with um, Ali Smith's uh, recent novels, which are obviously kind of driven by contemporary um, yes. uh, preoccupations? And I, I've only read the first of that. It's quartet, isn't it? Uh, obviously, because yeah. they're seasonal, um, which I think has now come. To an end. It has. Yes, yes. summer right was out it. earlier this and year. And we had a, a brilliantly um, sort of waspish review of her final uh, novel in the quartet, um, which looked as if it was really going to tear it apart, but then actually was rather um, full of praise uh, once once he got going. Um, and it did make me think I'd like to to dive back into to that. I don't know if anyone. Yeah, I've so I've I read Autumn and. Winter, is that correct? Yes, I'm. Yes, I did. I read autumn. That's winter. the way it goes. That's the way it goes. Um, <laughs> and I haven't read spring and summer. Um, I had more problems with autumn than other people did. I found it quite slight. Winter's very good. There's just a little bit more narrative um, to it. But it sounds like summer's the best one. And not only is it the best one, that it completely makes the other sort of the whole series cohere. 
Um, so it, yeah, it sounds like it's very much worth persevering with. There is also an argument that that we, we, we Ali Smith's shopping list would probably be worth reading. I think. <laughs> can I can I end with with one more book, please? Well, I'm sorry, that's all we've got time for. <laughs> I just want to say something about Caleb Fenny's book. Um, it's a poetry collection, uh, and it's called Poor. Have you have you heard about it at all? I haven't heard about it. No. So he's a, he's a filmmaker and he's a photographer as well, and it's. Um, it's something that I love. It's it's photographs and poems interleaved. Um, and it's set. So he's just he's incredibly talented. His poems, his poems are centered um, on the Peckham estate that he grew up on. Um, so it's, you know, the kind of 1960s architectural dream that the British did so well, uh, and, you know, has long since descended into something something else. It's the estate where Damanola Taylor was murdered. That's the estate that, that Caleb Femi uh, grew up on and his poems are just so you would expect that it would be really gut-wrenchingly depressing and dispiriting but there's this surprisingly bright energy to the whole thing um and I just I just yeah I I I, I just wanted to recommend that <laughs> I hope it's the first of many that sounds terrific yeah yeah um any final thoughts before we put this feature to bed for another year anyone Let's pick some funny books next year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, let's hope that um, writers are inspired to write funny books. What, by us saying this? No. We're at their I'm mercy. I'm thinking more about the uptick in the world. Yes, okay. But I suppose novels and such like do take a little bit longer than, than that, unless you're Ali Smith, to, um, to turn out. So we may have to wait another year. That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to David Horspool and Toby Lishtig. Thank you all for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Ben Mitchell. We'll be back next week. But for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.